0: Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast. I remember when True Detective came out, everyone was talking about it. But that was ten years ago. It's been a while since True Detective has felt urgent. But folks, we're back. Today on the podcast is a brand new season of True Detective... And critics cannot stop raving about it. I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. This is Commotion. All right, so the fourth season of True Detective just came out. It's set in Alaska. It stars Jodie Foster as a chief of police in a remote town. I want you to hear a bit of the trailer.
1: Some people come to Alaska to escape, They're away from something. Sometimes they come here looking for something Sometimes they find it I'm treating this like a murder case
2: How scared do you have to be to run out in the ice without any shoes?
3: Hey, This is a crime scene No more f***ing around You think I want to work with you? Take a look in the mirror No one can stand you
0: I have like full body chills just listening to that. And I've only seen the first episode of it. Okay. So it's been a minute since two detective was on the air. So let me just quickly remind you, this is an anthology series. Every season tells a new story in a new place with a bunch of new characters. The first season, Matthew McConaughey, Woody Harrelson aired about a decade ago. It was a huge phenomenon, but then the show went through, let's say, a lot of stuff since then. First, the show's creator was hit with this plagiarism scandal, and then two new seasons happened, but did they really happen? Because they didn't really live up to the original. But then, we're back. This new season, True Detective Night Country, has a new showrunner. Her name is Issa Lopez. She's at the helm. And it's already being hailed as the second coming of that first season of True Detective. There's a couple of people who are here who are really excited to talk about it. Jackson Weaver, Catherine Van Arendonk, welcome to the show, y'all. How's it going? Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about this. Oh, my goodness. Oh,
3: my goodness. <laughs> that, like, both both your eyes were, like,
0: lighting up as you were hearing the trailer. You're like, ah, yes, we're in it. We're in this universe. Um, okay, so the premise of Two Detective Night Country is that there's a group of scientists who have gone missing from an Arctic research lab. Jodie Foster's character is teaming up with a detective played by Kaylee Reese. The case seems to have some connection, maybe, to the last case that they worked together Catherine, let's talk about this season. How does this season tap into the DNA of what makes True Detective something that stands out from the rest of TV?
1: So TV is replete with detectives and crime fiction and has been from the very beginning of of the form. One of the things that has distinguished the first season of True Detective um, is that – usually we like our police procedural shows to be fairly grounded in reality Mm. and there was a way that the first season of true detective was tapping into this uncanny potentially supernatural gothic sense Mm -hmm. of horror which is usually not as far as as the crime shows tend to go and so This season really feels like it is connected to that first season more intensely than I think seasons two and three Mm. because it is so close to that same sense of does this crime have entirely plausible realist explanations? Are there elements of what's going on here that are sort of beyond human understanding? Mm -hmm. Um, That's really the biggest one. I would say that the other thing is you get that same Kind of dynamic between your two lead detectives where you have somebody who is more of a older, you're, you're grizzled, you're, you're yeah. world weary. And then you have somebody else who's younger, who maybe is more open to come some of these supernatural explanations. And it's a lot about the sort of play between those two.
0: People. Yeah, I, uh, I have to say, last night in the middle of the night, after, ha- after watching that episode, I woke up and I thought I heard someone say, she's awake. And uh, <laughs> and I was like, "That goes my there goes my night. I'm not going <laughs> to be able to continue sleeping for the rest of the night. Jackson, you were in the camp of people who thought, you know what, true detective, should just call it a day after season <laughs> one and just pack it in. We're never going to get that good again. Ugh. Do you still agree with that take?
3: Uh, that might be a little bit harsh. I, I, I was a little <laughs> bit negative, I will admit. But I will say, you know, earlier before we were just talking about, you know, us all coordinating our sweaters. Catherine, I think we might have been coordinating our answers because I had the exact same opinion about this new season. Now, like hmm. the first season, we had this supernatural element to it, which makes it work. Like it, it makes this show... Uh, different from what's already out there. It's different from Fargo. It's different from Under the Banner of Heaven. It has this kind of Lovecraftian spooky, scary, horror, supernatural element to it. Yeah. And it totally went away after the following seasons. And I think a part of that was, well, it, it totally went away in the second season, for sure, which is what made everyone kind of think that the show should have been one and done, should have ended. And part of that reason is because it was rushed to production. You know, the first season, created by showrunner, creator Nick Pizzolatto, was in his thoughts and his minds for however many years, for decades. He's writing it forever, based in where he's from, Louisiana. That's where he gr- grew up, and he has yeah. all these interesting elements of his life. Second season, a year later, it comes out. Not enough built-in. He hired somebody else, another novelist to try and help him write it, get all these avenues going, try and make it as deep and convoluted as the first season. It was just a mess, too many things going on. Third season is incredibly interesting. Marshall Ali, who's the main detective in that one, really leads that show. There is a sure. little bit of an element of supernatural what's going on here with these murders. But it wasn't the, you know, knockout punch that really gave that intense feeling that we got from season one. And I was kind of thinking, like, why even keep making this? We already have Fargo. Why not just watch that? So then
0: they make a season four and? Oh, my goodness. Season
3: four, we get the spooky scary back. We get two. It's inspired by two of the most spooky, scary true stories that have ever been told in the annals of true crime and mystery. And it really is infused with that that emotion that we got from the second season, Catherine, I totally agree with what you were saying.
0: Yeah, I think as we're talking about it, I really do have to physically get the feelings that entered my body out of my body through, (laughs) Mm -hmm. like, shakes and stuff. And I'm saying this, Catherine, as someone who's watched one episode. I've seen episode one and that was it. You have had had access to screeners. Uh, Does that feeling ever leave your body at all watching the rest of the episodes?
1: Well, I was going to say, I... I have been saying that I have seen all of this season, but that is not accurate because I really only had a good chunk of the last episode described to me by my husband who watched <laughs> it while I hid under a blanket. So I really do think that you're yeah. in for a ride.
0: Oh, it's okay. Okay. Does, does the rest of the season build well? Is that? It's, it's, I think so. Yeah. I think
1: so. I mean – I think one of the easiest things to complain about, particularly with mystery stories, is pacing. And I do have things that I wish had been given a little bit more time. There Mm. are some character notes that I wish I had a little bit more space to breathe because I think – there is such an escalation in the last two episodes in particular, like really hold on to your butts. And- I've already
0: been holding on to my butts, man. Okay, i right, continue.
1: <laughs> you are not prepared, <laughs> Um and-, and I do think there are some elements of that that I wish – had had just a little bit more space, um, but but by the time you get to, the, to those last two, it's really rip roaring. And and uh, and if you're afraid, of, if you have ca- claustrophobia issues, I'm really gonna recommend you consider this one carefully. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Great, thank you so much for that warning. Now I have to live with that for the rest of the <laughs> weeks while we wait for the rest of the show. Jackson, let's talk a little bit about uh, the performances in the show. We got Jodie Foster um, and Jodie Foster and her co-star. Uh, Kaylee Reese. Kaylee Reese, world champion boxer, only started acting a couple of years ago. Uh, Talk to me a little bit, Jackson, about the performances. What do you think of her performance and her on-screen dynamic with Jodie Foster?
3: I mean, Kaylee Reese is like... One of the most impressive acting finds, I think, that we can point to in the past few years. It's one of those. I don't know what it is with athletes come because we've had you know the the musician to actor pipeline for yeah. so much so long. The rapper actor pipeline. I don't know. Like wrestlers,
0: boxers, fighters. The big John Cena guy, Kat, Jackson. Is that what mm-hmm. that was happening? Here? No. <laughs> yes, yeah, John yeah, yeah. Cena. Yeah, of
3: and, like what is the what is the element in fighting that lends itself to acting? I don't know, but Kaylee Reese totally has it. The intensity, the fire, the the, the their character aligns so well with what the, the emotion that she's bringing to the screen and mm. working really well with Jodie Foster, who I am a big foster head. I don't know if that's what we're called, but I'm going <laughs> to name her right now. Huge fan of Jodie Foster. And I think she is kind of the, the thriller queen, you know, panic room. I like flight plan. I like, of course, silence of the lambs uh, X-files. She just has this embodiment this intensity that is kind of this cold intensity that, mm is very impressive in this. I do have some gripes a bit with the performance, a bit with the writing, maybe something that true crime has kind of hobbled itself with is the Matthew McConaughey character from season one that doesn't land quite as well as Jodie Foster. And I don't know if we've been looking at the headlines of these interviews she's been giving out where she's, hating on Gen Z, which that is just a little <laughs> bit fine. of a, it's it's fine She's it's earned a little it. bit of it's a stereotype of true detective the grizzled old detective that yeah. hates the younger generation and is um divorced from their own sense of self and their own self-hatred makes them hate everybody else and like it's an interesting archetype but it's one that's been in every season so far of true of uh, true detective so seeing again here something that didn't really um my new content two months but aside from that i mean the acting here is stellar and the story is just
0: as impressive uh, Catherine, again we've seen one episode but i was running through the office raving about a particular performance which is john hawks because we don't get enough john hawks just like out here in general yes. you know a classic yes. character actor talk yes. to me about john hawks in the show what, what is he what is he doing
1: so he plays a a sort of I don't want to say rival de- le- detective, but he is this more like a peer for Jodie Foster's character. Mm-hmm. Um, and his son is Jodie Foster's sort of assistant. Yeah, And that dynamic becomes very crucial to sort of how this season develops. I think John Hawks has one of those faces that is distinctive and yet, and you both want to trust him and he also has this undercurrent of, uh, of real sinister energy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the way that he can kind of flip between naivete and something much more malicious is so effectively up- wielded here and you're not sure which one actually you're gonna land, what side you're gonna land on. I loved him in this in this show um, when we were going through our list of like, who should we try to interview? I was like, John Hawks, John Hawks. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I just, I'm so thrilled that he gets such a good meaty role to play with here.
0: John uh, Hawks is one of those actors who, you know, you say the name, 40 people in a room are not gonna know who you're talking about. And then they see his face and they go, oh, he's the most oh, yeah, memorable face. <laughs> yeah. Most memorable performer, you know, in any of the movies that you've seen, even though he's always like third or fourth kind of billing. It's kind of like Barry Pepper, you know, like a Barry Pepper <laughs> of his generation. Again, I'm naming <laughs> names or someone is listening to me. They're going, I don't know who that is. I'm going to Google it. I guess I mean Google <laughs> Barry Pepper. You'll go, yeah, I know exactly who that is. Uh, Jackson, the first season of Two Detective was set in Louisiana, as you mentioned, this oh. season is kind of a contrast. Issa Lopez, a creator, said there's a lot of contrast with first season happening here. So first season, oh. we're warm. This season, we are in Alaska. You know, first season, <laughs> a lot of men. This season is like a lot of women-centric. Uh, what do you, what do you oh. make of the use of Alaska in this setting? I mean, I have a personal hyperfixation with Polar
3: Expeditions. I've read a bunch of books recently, like the Karen Erebus, yeah. the Belgica, the Greeley Expeditions, USSGNet. I love this aspect of humanity where you're in this place that is inhospitable to people. And when you get set a show here, it's almost like the environment is an antagonist in and of itself if you mm. go outside for too long you're not going to live long but also i think that a big element of this show that is saved in season four was the introduction Issa lopez um a uh, director from mexico who if i don't know if you've seen tigers are not afraid but this surrealist horror with all this symbolism packed into it that she brought along and finally got nick pizzolato to let go of the reins that he had for season one season two season three now he's executive producer he let somebody else with a new vision come aboard yeah. She's bringing all of these symbols, all of these illusions, all of this dark aspects to it. This season's really heavily inspired by the Mary Celeste and the Dyatlov Pass incident to, as I was talking about before, super spooky events. Mary Celeste, this ghost ship that um, was found off the coast of Canada. Everyone was gone. Um, There's only a rowboat attached to the back and they would all disappeared. Mm. I love this story. Dyatlov Pass incident. This incident of these hikers who were found frozen in Russia, all naked, all run- running from their tents no idea as to what might have happened to them. And you go back to something like The Terror, which is about the Erebus and the terror of the ships that the Frankl expedition tried to go across the um, uh, Canadian sub Arctic and find the Northwest Passage. They all disappeared, cannibalized each other. No one knows what happens. There's just this mystery that can mm-hmm. be put into these stories, set in this place where there's fewer people, a little harder to live there. and. Also, the elements of racism, um, subjugation, yeah. and ignorance that are baked into this. There's just so much going on here that there's a reason for this story to exist once again. I think Nick Pizzolatto had a great idea for the first one. All these personal experiences, all this kind of um, symbolism he wanted to push into it. And he said all he needed to say. And you have somebody else who has something that they need to say. Yeah. With actors that have something interesting to bring to the table. So... I know I was a little bit negative off the top, but the Alaska setting, the winter setting, the cold, the snow, and the supernatural makes it worth it.
0: Uh, The idea that you can just name a bunch of Arctic expeditions, by the way, is kind of wild to me. (laughs) And we're not going to just ignore the fact that that just happened. (laughs) No, I think you've done enough to establish your credentials in the matter, Catherine. Literally twenty seconds to you. Do you think the season is going to reach you know season one levels of phenomenon?
1: I think no television show has an easy time getting to massive viewership in the way that it did even 10 years ago. And so I am a little sad about that. But I do think HBO Sunday nights still own collective viewing in a way nothing else does.
0: Jackson, Catherine Van Arendenck, thank you so much for your time. I'm going to keep watching this. The horror has not left my body, but I appreciate you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Of course. Jackson Weaver is a reporter at the CBC's Entertainment Unit. Catherine Van Arendonk is a TV critic at Vulture. The first episode of HBO's True Detective, Night Country, is available right now on Crave. You get your podcasts. My name is Alameen Abdul Mahmoud. This is Commotion. We're gonna take a moment to switch gears here, and just a heads up, we'll be talking about a topic that I think some listeners might find difficult. Over the holidays, we learned that the South Korean actor Lee Lee Sung-kyun had died. He was found dead in a car in Seoul and is believed that he took his own life. Lee was a star on the rise both at home and abroad. He starred in Bong Joon-ho's film Parasite, which won Best Picture a few years back. Lee Lee Sung-kyun played the father of the rich family in that film, if you remember it. In the wake of his passing, a coalition of artists and filmmakers, including Bong Joon-ho, have come together to ask for more protections for artists – this is from a news conference held on friday.
3: a bit of bong Jung Ho speaking at Friday's
0: news conference. Here to talk about this is Korean pop culture professor Michelle Cho. Michelle, welcome back. Welcome back to Commotion, friend.
2: Uh, nice to be here. Thank you.
0: Of course, I'm glad to have you here. Listen, I think we need to start by talking about what happened to the actor Lee sung Kyun. Can you tell us a bit about what was going on through the in the public eye um, that led up to his death?
2: Sure. Okay. So Lee had been dealing with a lot of bad press since October. Um, that's when a criminal investigation started into alleged use of illegal drugs. Um, and that led to him being dropped from upcoming projects as well as advertising contracts and that sort of thing. Um, and the days in, I think a few days before his death, he had gone through a marathon 19 hour interrogation, mm. which was his third round of questioning by police. Um, and so, yeah, that couldn't have been a great experience
0: uh, can we I guess just give a bit of a broader context of like why is an allegation of drug use why is that a, why is that a really big deal for any public figure in South Korea
2: mm-hmm. so it's really hard for me to overstate like how scandalous and um just devastating mm. a drug conviction would be for a celebrity in South Korea I think There are two factors to this, and they kind of have some historical uh, context. But um, the first is that using illegal drugs is very taboo in South Korea. And you'll find that, you know, attitudes about Just recreational drugs
0: drugs that. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. I mean, the drugs that Lee was accused of taking were marijuana Mm. and uh, ketamine, I think which both have, you know, legalized uses in other places in the so-called um, developed West. So, I was going to say, like, yeah. the comedian
0: Pete Davidson, his whole new special is about him using ketamine and, like, joking right. about it, right? Like, he sort of quite openly yes. talks about it. But in contrast, yes. um, that's in- not the case in South-, South Korea.
2: Exactly. And so I think this taboo against, um, you know, banned substances illegal drugs narcotics um, it starts in um, the 60s and 70s in mm. when when South Korea was ruled by a military dictatorship and so this authoritarian culture um really it, I think it was there to to get people to accept, um, surveillance and control over their lives. Mm. And part of that was by moralizing, um, you know, putting out these messages about what a bad person you are Mm. if you use these drugs. And so that's one of the, the kind of streams, I think of context that, that help us to understand why this would be so bad. Um, the other is, you know, just the way that the South Korean public thinks about celebrity what celebrity is um in Mm. some ways they think about celebrities as on a par with public figures like politicians like there's a responsibility upon you exactly you're kind of like a public servant so Mm. if you're in the public eye and the public is basically making it possible for you to be successful as a you know um as a famous person yeah then you owe it to them to live a morally upright life you need to be a role model so anything that right. you do that could be perceived as you know immoral is should should rightfully take you down in the minds of a lot of Koreans.
0: So we're seeing a bit of pushback against some of this culture, against some of this conception. Uh, Parasites director Bong Joon-ho, along with all of other people from the film film industry, they held this news conference about about the death. What specifically are they asking for?
2: So they requested in a statement at this press conference, which was televised in South Korea, Mm -hmm. um, uh, for thorough investigation of police handling of Lee's case and uh the specifically how protected sensitive information was about his case and whether or not there were irregularities about leaking information to the press because tabloids had kind of gone crazy hmm. with lee's lee's story
0: uh so let's talk a little bit about the show solidarity because it's I'm quite compelled by it. it looked like there's a sort of a strong forceful um, rejection of um the conditions that led to Lee's death. Have we seen a show of solidarity like this one from Korean artists before?
2: Uh no, that's what's so remarkable about this case. And especially having such a high-profile figure like Pong Jin-ho um take the lead. He was the, the main speaker at this press conference. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, we we see the industry kind of react with sadness, grief, mourning when other Artists have taken their lives, which is an occurrence that has a sad kind of frequency in in South Korea. Um, So we've seen them kind of rally around in mourning and and support and grief. But this is the first time that we've seen them form an organization that's making this request for protections, for privacy rights, for celebrities.
0: What's been kind of compelling to me as I watch this story is that, you know, it's, it's, It's had international ramifications in a sense, right? It's now been covered around the world, um, which kind of ends up introducing challenges even to the culture that exists or might exist in South Korea maybe. Um, And Mm -hmm. this is the time when South Korea's cultural capital has never been higher on the global stage. So there's a little bit more to lose in a sense. Do you think this coalition uh, and what they're asking for, do you think they will make a difference in terms of the, the space that they're occupying?
2: Hmm. I really hope so. I mean, I think we have to wait and see what happens. Since definitely these cultural attitudes, especially about again what celebrities owe their public, yeah. they're really sticky. But the more scrutiny the situation gets, especially in the foreign press with global audiences in Hollywood, um, namely the people and places that South Korea the government and the industry, and also South Koreans at large, yeah. are trying to kind of impress, you know, yeah. in order to increase their soft power. Um, I think the more attention this gets, the more attitudes will change at home. And so I think this is a really important step. And and this case, sad as it is, is hopefully going to be the beginnings of some change.
0: Michelle, as always, I'm grateful to have you here. Thank you so much for your time, friend.
2: Oh, thanks for having
0: me. Of course. Michelle Cho is a professor in the Department of East Asian Studies at the University of Toronto. For more on the story, cbcnews.ca. That is it for the podcast today. Remember, you can listen to any episode of the show anytime you like wherever you get your podcasts. If you've got a moment, check us out on Instagram. We are at Commotion CBC. My name is Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm going to be back tomorrow. So if you've got the time, we'd love to hang out then. See you then. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.